From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada... That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email, openline at ewtn.com. Or you can text your question to Colin. Text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response, text your first name and your question message, and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, the aforementioned Vice President of Theology for EWTN, Mr. Colin Donovan, how are you? Oh, pretty good, I think, all things considering, as the word world seems to fall apart around us these yeah, days. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting topic, and as we did yesterday, we'll uh, encourage everybody to keep uh, all of the people of Ukraine and everybody involved in this situation in your prayers, and uh, especially we would request that you keep our EWTN colleagues that are um, operating in Ukraine, that we would keep them safe, and that... Uh, this would all come out with uh, some sort of a resolution that would allow them to continue their good work there, huh? Right, yeah. And they've determined that they're going to stay in um, in Kiev, I guess it is, where they are, and they're going to keep going, broadcasting the Mass daily and uh, the other programming, um, and hopefully that'll provide a comfort to people. And they'll do that as long as they're actually able to do it. Yeah. So the next time we get together, it'll be we'll be full-blown into Lent, It'll be our first penitential Friday of Lent, even though every Friday should be penitential to some degree. Uh, but we'll have a day of, of uh, abstinence and fasting on Wednesday for Ash Wednesday next week. And then the first Friday of Lent, followed by obviously the first Sunday of yeah. Lent. Talk a little bit about the liturgical calendar uh, and the, the two penitential seasons and how they differ and uh, in severity, for lack of a better word, uh, and and, right. uh, and other things, yeah. just it's really the it's one of the things that I have found since converting uh, from an evangelical background to be really almost the 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 life's breath of the church. Well, let, let's start with the major penitential season, which is the one we're about to enter. We have to remember that in the in the early church, uh, when looking to cel- celebrate feast days uh, for the honor and glory of God and to rejoice for the blessings mankind has received as well, Easter was, became the centerpiece. And so from Easter to, grew a period of preparation for Easter. 
uh, intended for the benefit of the catechumens, those who were coming into the church, those who would be baptized at the Easter vigil. And eventually that became standardized uh, as our season of Lent, by which not just the catechumens prepare for Easter, but each of us uh, prepare for Easter. And part of that is if you talk about the, the, the three legs of charity, penitence, and prayer, uh, that should in some respect make up everybody's, uh, every Christian's life. Uh, scripture speaks of each of these and the importance of each of these. And so for the season of Lent, for the preparation for Easter, then we could now have some way in which we're going to exercise each of those and the church provides a way which makes it very easy. And some people may look at it as, well, the church makes these rules. In a way, they're making a rule that is easy to comply with. Uh, Christ himself said, you, mu you must do penance. And so penance is a necessary part of the Christian life. The church makes it easy by providing the penitential day, Friday, which runs throughout the year, sort of every Friday, a mini miniature version of Good Friday, looking to Sunday, a little Easter. Think of it in that. And so in that sense, Easter continues to be the centerpiece of the church's liturgical calendar. During Lent, it expects a little bit more from us, and that is that uh, although the general law of the church is that every Friday is a day of abstinence unless it's a solemnity, such as if Feast of St. Joseph in March were to fall on a, on a Friday, even though it's Lent, uh, that would be a solemnity and you would be able to eat meat. Outside of the period of Lent in the United States, we have the indult that that is dispensed if the individual chooses to do some substitution. That goes away during Lent. So there is a strict obligation, moral and canonical, to practice the uh, Friday abstinence during Lent. And there are the usual two ways, um, both morally and canonically, that a person is excused from that. One would be impossibility. They're sick. They're simply incapable of doing that. Uh, they do hard physical labor. They, they need that sustenance. So these kinds of reasons you can always discuss with your confessor, whether it's a legitimate basis or not, or you're just looking for an excuse, you know, to have a hamburger on Friday. Uh, and you probably should if you don't think you have a, uh, a solid reason or wonder whether you have a solid reason for not observing the abstinence of Lent. During Advent, that becomes another mildly penitential season, again, arounding the great feast day, the great high holy day of Christmas. But it's, it's the first part of the, the entire season of Advent, but especially the first part, has that orientation because the liturgical readings. The liturgical readings about the second coming of Christ before we move into the prophetic readings that point to the first coming of Christ. And so there it's calling for some reflection on you know, the memento mori, if you will, remember death, that we, we will all die, we will all be judged, and the second coming, although it's at some distant point as a judgment of all of human history, we will each reach that judgment sooner or later anyway by at the moment of our death. And so that first part of Lent is looking forward to the second coming, but also that continuous reflection we should have that one day we too will be judged. So the whole schema of penance, and whether it's in Advent or in Lent or outside of that, is that 
we ought to be able to control our will to avoid sin. And, of course, we can do that positively by exercising virtue when the opportunity gives that to us. And we can, in a sense, do that by the negative fashion of denying our will things that it wants. And so those two should go together like hand and glove throughout the Christian life. The moral choice to do the virtuous and then the choice to perhaps exercise the will when it's easier that you might exercise it when it's harder, especially on occasions of sin. So uh, all of that comes out of the Scripture, Old and New Testament, in one fashion or another. The church has just given the, the Catholic a structure, a framework, in which to do those necessary things that are in more or less, in that sense, obligatory for our salvation. You know that's and that's to you, you've talked about the motivations a little bit there, but a lot of that is is jot and tittle of canon law. Yes, uh, but um, the reason that, that these jots and tittles are in place is for our own uh, spiritual edification, and I think that's that right. and, and it's the way we enter into it and the attitude with which we enter into it that has a lot to do with that. And if you look at a lot of even our own time. You know, a, a lot of the people who have really uh, demonstrated heroic virtue and faith um, have stories about how they made a resolution to have a good Advent or a good Lent, and it really right. springboarded yeah. them into a deeper relationship with our Lord that everybody can see. And, and that's the thing about Lent. May, most of us may not be able to go on a major retreat, especially one of the big ones like the 30-day retreat that the Jesuits give and others uh, do silent retreats and so on. But what we can do is focus during Lent on the spiritual things so that outside of Lent we're able to be a little bit more attentive to them when all the distractions of the world impinge upon us, attract us to, to doing things that would require us to abandon virtue uh, and to sin. And so Lent can become a time when we can refocus our lives spiritually and, and ought to be every year for every one of us, whether we're far along the way of sanctity or whether we're just beginning that path as a new Catholic, a new Christian. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line if you're outside the United States and Canada at 1-205-271-2985. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, one of the things I love is the universality of the church. And, and when I go into a Catholic church that I haven't been in, one of the things that I will almost always seek out or one of the things that I'll notice is the various stations of the cross that are almost... Mm-hmm. Unique to every church that you, every Catholic church that you go into. Well, we have a, a beautiful uh, opportunity for you uh, at EWTN's religious catalog. 
with a pocket Stations of the Cross. Uh, they're usually found, as we mentioned, only in churches, but now you can carry the Stations of the Cross with you. A military chaplain here in the U.S. designed this Stations of the Cross brass plate front and back. It makes a great gift for wedding confirmation, uh, someone coming into the faith, for a seminarian, for a priest, uh, someone commemorating the loss of a loved one, or for those who struggle, uh, whose daily struggle keeps them from attending Mass and they don't get to see those beautiful stations inside the churches. This two-sided brass plate measures about two and a half inches by four inches, and it's available now at EWTN's religious catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. Free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. That is standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. That is the number that Antonio used in San Francisco, California. Watching us today on YouTube. Antonio, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, um, thank you for taking my call. Sure. I'm reading the uh, book of Genesis, and I just want to um, know how the Catholic Church take the, uh, when talk about giant people, giant animals, and people living uh, hundreds of years. Um, mm -hmm. Please uh, tell me how the, we should uh, take this. Uh, um, how, how to understand that, sure. Yeah. Give me that one, Methuselah Donovan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not quite 900, um, but I'm getting there quickly. I think well, it depends on what you mean by literally. There is a, a sense in which sure, we, you know, by the standards of today, you know, if you saw some of these NBA basketball players and you'd never seen an NBA game before with the— the Chinese guy, or Shaq O'Neal, or or, yeah. or somebody like that. Yeah, you you, need to you take would a flying leap into the twenty first century, but we know what you're talking uh, about. You do, you do. <laughs> you would refer to them as giants. So there is a element of perspective in that, and so the church, when speaking of what literal means in the scripture, takes a different view than say many of the uh, Protestant groups, which would try to, you know, take take it in. I guess in a way that would suggest a literal account of history such as we would do history today. Now, if you look at different cultures over time, their ways of doing history have been quite different. Our modern idea or scientific idea of history of, you know, that, you know, on Monday this year this happened, on Tuesday of the next year this happened, th this is not the way most. They've told it by way of stories. They told it by way of myth. Detached from time and many other things because they, they didn't keep calendars, they might go by the number of moons or they might go by the number of suns. But anyways, it was not a empirically testable category of of. Uh, of things that we would account today. So if you look at Mediterranean people, I think it was when the Celts poured down into the Mediterranean basin. They look like very giant people. Or if you look at different cultures today, if you put, uh, you know, somebody from southern Italy next to somebody from Scandinavia, there's, there's quite a different, would be typically quite a difference of height there. So the thing about the term literal means you have to understand the historical context, that means the way of writing, the way of thinking, the way of recording things of those times, uh, it would involve getting into what the 
point of view of the of the author was what are they trying to say are they are they trying to give an account here's an example in the gospel of luke and in the uh, acts of the apostles luke makes clear he's trying to give a historical record now if you look in the old testament at judges or other things there's clearly a picking and choosing of which kings to report and and uh and just exactly what's happening and so the idea is to get in and understand what is the purpose of the author and his intention, because God is using that. God did not author these in the sense that he gave the exact wording, but that he inspired the writing and he protected the writing such that, as the church teaches, everything that he wished to convey got conveyed and nothing beyond what he wished to be conveyed was conveyed, but that the human author did it by his own choices. There is, in, in inspiration, scriptural inspiration, you might say, a precision of divine grace and human freedom being present there, that we can speak of the scriptures, these are the word of God, and yet freely written down by the human being for his purposes, but which then God used also for his. And in all of that, we discover the truth. So when we're looking at what constituted history, we know that uh, in the case, I think, of most of the books of the Old Testament, uh, the earliest writing down on them was probably in the 8th or 9th century before Christ, based on traditions which had been around for a very long time. Those are accurately uh, conveyed in there. And so we then have to get at what is being, uh, what is being said in there. And I think uh, when, I, when I look to find, well, can we get down into the details of it? When John Paul II was doing his catechesis on Genesis back in the 1980s, he went even into the psychology of Adam and Eve and what it meant in terms of original justice, the meaning of the first sin, and all of that. And that was only possible because Genesis conveyed truth but it's something you have to get at. It's not necessarily something that you pick it up like you read a history book today. And so the whole uh, exercise of exegesis of Scripture is always getting at the attention of the author, getting at all of the historical details of that, and then realizing that there are different forms of speech uh, in Scripture as there is in daily life. We use similes and metaphors. Christ used hyperbole and, and uh, metaphor. Uh, these are ways of speaking. We don't take those literally. That com makes more complex the decision as to what is literal in Scripture, uh, especially in the older historical books. So the church d doesn't say that Genesis is not a literal account of history, but it's an account of history according to authors who didn't make historical accounts the way we would today. And that's where it got to be our starting point for diving in there, you know, and trying to find out what God is saying. He's certainly saying in early Genesis that everything in the universe he made. He's certainly saying that the first human beings he made. He's certainly saying that those human beings sinned. And as a consequence of that, we received the penalty of original sin, as we call it, and on and on through the through the book of uh, through the book of Genesis. 
It's getting at what is what is being said there and the degree of literality as we would understand that today. That's the difficult part. This is why Christ gave us a church, after all. He gave us a church that, in the end, will sort through these things, and when there is something there that needs to be affirmed, it will affirm it. Um, otherwise, we're free to understand it uh, in uh, however we think best to understand it and apply it in our own life by spiritual reflection on, on the text of Scripture. Uh, the church hasn't defined a great deal, but she has defined some things, and that is the sin of Adam, uh, Christ as the, as the new Adam, uh, who repaired that sin, and you go on down through the, the list of the things which the church teach uh, teaches. It hasn't defined, for example, the point of whether the material element of man was specially created by God or whether it was created from the earth, as Scripture puts it, by means of uh, processes which God built into nature. Pope Pius XII left that open uh, for investigation and study, and science will make its contributions. But what we do know is that no soul can arrive in a human being unless God puts it there. And therefore, the beginning of man is with those two people into whom God gave the gift of his own divine life, of his own life, uh, uh, spiritual soul. Uh, so that's a factum that we can't deny and we can't get away from. Uh, and the text around it makes that point, uh, but it makes that point in a way that is, uh, you know, still open to some debate as to the, the details of the origins of the body of man and so on and so forth. Thanks, Antonio. We appreciate the phone call. 833 833- 288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Wide open phone lines on this open line Friday, 833-288-3986. You know, Colin, we were talking about our attitudes towards Lent at the the beginning of the program, and um, and the one kind of final point I wanted to make to to follow that up here in the last minute or so that we have is that uh, having my favorite trout almondine at Shea wherever is probably not the best demonstration of penitence during Lent on Friday, is it? No, I think you should get a can of tuna down at Publix and crack that open <laughs> use it with some saltine crackers. That's That would be my recommendation uh, for you. But the, but the idea is that, that you know, there should not, be some kind of a penitential right. attitude you, you, going you into can't, these things. Right. Yeah. You can't go down and pig out just because it's Friday and you, yeah. And, and that's why I think, uh, you know, although it's the, we only have the two days of fast, which we didn't mention, Ash Wednesday and Good, Good Friday, Friday are the two days of fast, when not only may we not eat meat, but we also have to limit the amount of food that we eat to one main meal and two meals, which if added together would not exceed the amount in that uh, main meal. So whether your main meal is lunch or dinner, then your breakfast and your other meal should be uh, uh you know, smaller so that you're, you're, you're consuming less than you would on a normal day when you're e- able to eat freely at all your meals. And that's a stepping off point for, it you is. know, a, a, right. a young person of good health. That would kind of be where you start. You know, you might even consider something a little more rigorous than that. Well, and I think maybe those of us who have healthy appetites should go a little bit further on, on something like that. You know, a, an older person, a weak person, a fragile person, um, 
are going to be excused from that by the law itself. Uh, so, but they can still, if their constitution permits it, they can also do fasting. They're just not obliged to do it. Uh, but that, that's always going to be a prudential consideration in particular cases. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still a couple of open lines for you at 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Back to the phones we go. Steve is in the great state of California watching us on YouTube today. Steve, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Thank you, guys. Just a quick question on not being non-Catholic, 20-year listener to you guys, but just I recently had a surgery, and I was given anointing of the sick because I asked for a Catholic priest not having any current denomination affiliation um what was i given or what was valid in that mm-hmm. giving of the of the anointing of the sick okay so you're 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 not a catholic no sir uh you're baptized baptized yes, sir. christian uh, trying okay. in baptism yes yeah. yes yeah yeah um well, I can I can see the possibility of validity there i know that chaplains in wartime uh they have a variety of you know, in a, in a situation where people are wounded, they have, may have a variety of, of people, uh, of men or women, as is in our wars today. Uh, so it's conceivable. There is a provision in our in Catholic Church law that in these kinds of circumstances and so on. Um, General now for the Catholic certainly somebody going under general anesthesia is considered. Uh, uh, although you're not in extremis yet, you could be very quickly in 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 need of the sacrament, uh, and so it's not unusual at all for somebody going uh, under the gas, as it were, or in this case through the veins, uh, to uh, be, receive the sacrament of anointing. So if you were Catholic, the circumstances would be justified. Being baptized, it would be possible for you to receive it. Uh, And then that is left in the judgment of the priest. So perhaps he was convinced that this would do you some good. Um, The benefits of it is, and the purposes of anointing of the sick, you can read a little bit about that in the the letter of St. James, that, you know, to bring him to the, bring the sick person to the presbyters, and they would pray over them. The church sees the principal basis, not anticipating what God may or may not do in this situation, as strengthening the person in union with Christ on the cross to be able to endure if death should come about to make that passage uh, in union with Christ and therefore to spend eternity with him in eternal life. For Catholics, the church sees that as also satisfying the uh, obligation to confess one's sins, uh, for those who are unable to by circumstances, I could conceivably see that applying in your case also. So it's de- it's definitely a mixed case theologically and canonically, uh, and I think I, I 
I'd be grateful and leave it to the judgment of the priest whether that was, uh, he felt that in those circumstances, giving it to a non-Catholic were justified, well, as he could very well have thought. Yeah, and the fact that Steve requested a Catholic priest probably goes a long way towards meeting some of those And criteria. And maybe uh, even, I don't know if he knew you were not Catholic, but even knowing and coming and wanting to giving you something that would comfort you and strengthen you, he felt that he could. Um, I, I'm not going to... I'm not going to double-check that that je- pastoral judgment, essentially. Thanks, Steve. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. couple of open lines and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Carmen is in the great state of Oklahoma, and Carmen has been listening to the show, Colin, and she's got a follow-up question, it looks <laughs> like. Carmen, thanks for listening. You're on with Colin. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Yes, I do listen to you almost every day. Uh, this came up in our adult ed class uh, mm-hmm. last Sunday. Uh, in the Bible, it talks about all these people, and they lived to be 100 and 150, 200 years old, and so on. So the question was, how did they calculate time then? Is it the same way we do it now? So when the, in, the, in the Bible, if they said someone lived to be 150 years old, would that be like now they lived to be 150 years old? You understand what I'm saying? <laughs> I, I do, and I don't know that we we can even answer that question. Uh, some have suggested, well, they were using a moon calendar, and therefore they were not. I, I, I highly doubt that their counting of, of time was that different for us, that the passage of the seasons and the place of the sun and the heavens didn't have some role in it. Um, you, you know, I think because it's coming out of oral traditions, it's hard to g- estimate what were they saying? You know, is it like I was said? If you, you know, if you were four foot nine and you suddenly encountered, uh, you know, an NBA player who was seven foot one, you'd say there are giants in these here parts. So you don't know what perspective them come out of. I don't think that that's an issue to be so necessarily to be solved. It may have been something of that nature. Uh, I think that uh, many people contemplating well. How is history as a whole written about in sacred scripture? Is it presuming uh, an earth-like paradise, or is it presuming a special place for Adam and Eve? And were there consequences of that place being, you know, being ended and destroyed and then being cast out? What does this tell us about was human longevity longer? I think scientists today generally feel that there's a maximum possibility of 120 years for human beings. We do know that sometimes you'll hear of a 128-year-old. Uh, oddly, in the Caucasus, where supposedly Noah's Ark came to rest, uh, you find a, a long, very long-lived people. But that's still a good distance from 900 years. So I think there may be the pious exaggeration of any stormer, storyteller in that to some extent, there may be other versions of calculation that we're not familiar with. I don't see how they can be that much different from a solar year, however. So I think tradition passing on these things and the benefits and, and how aged their ancestors were and so on and so forth, uh, you know, it could be a little bit of fishtails. It could be a little bit of calculation. Uh, it could be also copyist errors. Uh these are things ultimately we can't sort out. It doesn't do, you know, a twit 
to destroying in any way the veracity of sacred scripture, which on so many levels uh, has proven itself to be uh, to be verified. Carmen, that's the best non-answer you're going to get all day. Exactly. I hope it's the best one she gets today. Otherwise, send me whatever you get that you think is better. <laughs> God bless you, Carmen. Thanks so much for the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-3986. John writes in, could you speak to the philosophy of guardian angels? Where is the teaching... And can you suggest a resource that I can study to understand them better? You can go to our religious ca- catalog, and you can look for the number of books. There are books by uh, uh, a number of people over over the years. Uh, you can go to our website and put in Guardian Angels. You should pull up the Catechesis on the Angels, which John Paul II did in the 90s, I believe, in which he talked about the theology of this. Uh, the the theology theology of this is quite clear. We find in the Old Testament that uh, uh, Michael, the uh, uh, the prince Michael, uh, we think that's referring to his uh, either to the angelic choir of princes or to uh, to the the prince among the archangels. Uh, in general, he's considered to be an archangel. He was the guardian angel of Israel, uh, who was stood. An angel who bore some relationship to Persia. Uh, I hardly think a good angel, but uh, in any case, he stood up to it, that angel. We have our Lord in the Gospels referring not to, not to scandalize little ones, for their angel beholds the face of God continuously. In other words, the angels who are all beatified have the beatific vision constantly. They behold the face of God, uh, something that we shall one day do, uh, providing we get to heaven. Uh, and so there in all of that is the belief that not only... Uh, not only individuals are given a guardian, guardian angel, but that even collectivities of human beings are given guardian angels. Uh, if you go to Washington, New Jersey, there is a statue at the a shrine of Our Lady of Fatima there, uh, the, the U.S. shrine, to, of the guardian angel of the United States. Uh, so this, this is coming out of the scriptural tradition uh, under the formation of the fathers and doctors of the church and the, uh, and the magisterium of the church down through the ages. We've had kind of a Genesis-themed program so far. So I've got a good email here from Corey who says, If Adam and Eve didn't have concupiscence, why were they inclined to sin? Does it have to do with the internal versus external te- temptation? Well, I think certainly their first sin was an intellectual sin, because that's what de- the devil tempted them to do. Uh, we don't know the context of that. Uh, some posit some relationship to sexual activity that they may have wanted to do uh, imp- improperly, uh, but that's just speculation. The main thing is, what did the devil do? He tested them with pride. Well, God told you this. But really, he just wants to keep you from knowing those things because if you knew them, you would be like God. And so it was the sin of pride and in the sin of envy that the same thing that brought the devil himself down, that he didn't like the plan that God revealed to him, and so he rebelled. And so the devil, in a sense, uh, you know, it said that good is effusive. In other words, good generates good, expands and, and gives good to others. The devil is the opposite of that. 
he expands with his evil, and generally along the lines of which he himself is evil. And that's pride, uh, envy, perhaps of human beings, of man. That's been one suggestion of the fathers. And so he carried that over and he tempted Adam and Eve to that pride and to that envy, that rather waiting patiently on the providence of God for the knowledge of, of things beyond them, God gave them the knowledge of nature after all. He said, you know, to name the creatures. They had everything they needed in the, for the world in which they lived, but they wanted something more. And it was ultimately the same temptation uh, as uh, the devil himself had. He wanted more than what God was able, was willing to providentially uh, give them, give him. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Here's a question that I'm sure you've heard, but I've never pondered it before. Donovan, interestingly enough, would like to know, could an ecumenical council ever add more books to the biblical canon if they determined the books were inspired? For instance, the Church Fathers. Well, the Church Fathers can't belong to the canon because they came along after the end of the last apostle. So the principle is that Christ, as we're, we're told in Hebrews, who is the summation of all the prophets. In other words, everything God has given to us is given through Christ. And Christ appoints men, and when the last of them died, and the, he appointed them with the charism to lead them to truth, and when the last of them died, there can be no new revelation. This is why the Catholic Church uh, rejects that Muhammad had revelation, that Joseph Smith, the Mormons, had revelation, the New Age revelations, which are supposedly preparing us for the age of Aquarius and all of that. Any kinds of things which contradict and go against and, si and suggest that they build upon that which Christ left us and the apostles explained until their last breath— or then reflected upon by the fathers and doctors of the church, not to add anything new, but to develop that which was already possessed, and then confirmed by the magisterium. Anything outside of that is not from God, is not public revelation. So we'll see no new public revelation. We'll see no new books um, um, added to the Bible. And the only books that have been ever taken away from the Bible were taken away in the 1600s, 1500s, by those who, who rejected that 1,500-year patristic and magisterial authority of the Church. Uh, so others may come along and take away books, but uh, it won't be the Church. The Church will never do that, and the Church will never add to those books either. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next up is Chris in Vero Beach, Florida, listening on 910 AM. Chris, you are on with Colin Donovan. Yes, uh, I want to talk about the fact that uh, your president, uh, Pope, uh, used that word, that non-theological word, inadmissibility. Mm -hmm. Here we are back in Genesis again, referring to the death penalty, uh, the... Uh, Rome, as far as St. Paul goes, he says, for your egg, the government are God's ministers working for your good. But if you are doing wrong, then you will have cause for fear, for it is not nothing that they hold the power of the sword, and the sword is referring to capital punishment, for they are God's agents for punishment, for retribution, for retribution on the offender. Now, that's what St. Paul said. He also said in Acts 25, 11, when he was talking to Festus, 
that uh, he doesn't he did not refuse the death penalty if if he deserved the death penalty. Uh, now, Ecclesiastes, the wisest man who ever lived, in Ecclesiastes 8.11, says, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the hearts of the sons of men is fully set in them to commit evil. Isaiah 121 says your cities are going to be filled with murderers, New Orleans, blood bespattered, uh, Baltimore, New uh, Sodom, New York City. I suppose you have a question in there somewhere, well, yeah. other than a dictation. But. You know, how, how would... How would uh... <laughs> How would the suggested lack of necessity for the death, pe- death penalty uh, that has been somewhat articulated by the last two, or two of the right. last three Holy right. Fathers, right. how would that wash with all of the scriptural references that he just gave you? Well, if it were really a matter of obli- obligation to have the death penalty, there would not be a reason why for 300 years the Church rejected the use of the death penalty. And only after the Edict of Milan, which gave the Church the freedom to teach within the Empire and to infuse Christian values into the Empire, did the Church accede to the idea of just war and a just use of the death penalty. So for the first three centuries, apparently, the, uh, the obviousness in Scripture of this point of view never struck the popes, the bishops, the, the pastors, the saints, the fathers in, uh, of the church. Now, the death penalty belongs to the natural law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. There's no question about that. The church has generally defended the natural law. Some speak also of a law of nations. St. Thomas makes this distinction. So, for instance, there were certain things that nations did. If they conquered, they enslaved people because that was the safest way to protect their societies. You don't take potential enemies into your, the body politic, and therefore you enslave them as the Romans did, as cultures did, all, all cultures did that, in order to make the point of your superiority. And Thomas tells us this follows naturally according to, you know, the nature of man and, and so on. So in that sense, it's quite a natural thing. But the question then arises, is it really the best thing? Is this what Jesus envisioned? I think the first three centuries is a better gauge of what Jesus envisioned. And in the first three centuries, the church did not, uh, did not do that. Now, this gentleman can go to our website and put in, we have a voting section, and there is a section on capital punishment which gives some historical references. And I think one of the key ones to this is from uh, about the year 360, remembering in that in 313, the Edict of Milan liberating Christianity, at least giving it a legal status, making it capable of evangelizing, uh, setting up churches. In fact, Constantine gained property uh, to the early early popes, to St. Peter's is built on such property, the John Lateran is built. Most of the larger churches of Rome are built on property given out of the personal fortunes of Constantine and his mother, Helen. And so the, the church going from there uh, did begin to admit a limited use of these kind things in defense of the state as well. But there was a letter that was written to... Uh, Bishop Ambrose, who was the bishop in Milan, St. Ambrose, by a judge who asked the question, he has a horrendous case of soldiers. They had mutilated uh, civilians, so therefore under the Roman law uh, they were deserving of the death penalty. 
But he wondered if, a, as a Christian, he should do this. And he basically uses the, uh, in responding to that, Ambrose basically gives an argument similar to, uh, I think it was the quote from Ecclesiastes. And that is, the judge who wished to preserve the order and in the society, certainly the church understands how he could, could do that, how he could do the uh, order the death penalty. But he cites the example of Christ with the woman caught in adultery as the better example for the Christian. And that is the example of mercy in hopes of repentance. And I think this is what the last number of popes have, su- have suggested. This, I think, is the meaning of inadmissible. The Pope, Pope Francis could have chosen intrinsically evil, and that would have been false because it's not intrinsically evil, because justice is justice. But he pointed to an evangelical motive, and I think this is the motive of Ambrose as well. And that is, a more perfect satisfaction and holding of the gospel would be to show mercy in view of the hope of conversion. And this is Ambrose's argument. Without condemning the judge if he felt that because of his civic duties he had to do, do the other. But that was not what Ambrose was recommending. He didn't think that's what the gospel was recommending. So I, I guess if the, if the premise which the gentleman made is true, then for the first 300 years the church didn't get it right, St. Ambrose didn't get it right, uh, Aquinas didn't get it right, who makes distinctions uh, like this in slavery and other, other areas that men commonly took as necessary for the protection of themselves or society. Um, and so... That's, that'll be my defense as well. And I'll do it on behalf of Pope Francis, Pope Benedict, Pope John Paul II, I presume John Paul I, and Paul VI as well, all of whom look to and hope for the eventual absol- uh, abolition of capital punishment. Thanks, Chris. We appreciate the call. Next up is Scott, driving through the great state of Louisiana, a first-time caller, listening on The Almighty's 690. Scott, you are on Open Line Friday. Hey, good afternoon. So one of you guys, and I didn't hear which one, said that you were were originally an evangelical Christian and converted to Catholicism. I'd just like to hear your story as to what compelled you to do that. Well, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version of it. Um, I was raised Methodist. Uh, We were really not a, a practicing Methodist family until the time that I was in high school. But when I was in college, I became part of a charismatic campus evangelical ministry. I uh, traveled halfway around the world with only enough money to get there and back. And that, my mother loved that, by the way. Um, and, uh, and, um, and eventually what happened was I married a Catholic girl. And then as our children were starting school uh, in a Catholic school, and my son was preparing for First Communion, um, I started having some conversations with uh, the pastor of, of the parish where the where our son was in school, and I, I really approached the Catholic faith from a perspective that you would expect from someone with my background of where is this, that, or the other Catholic teaching in the Bible. And as I spoke with this beautiful pastor who was very patient with me and my arrogant self, um, I slowly started to shift my focus to does this, that, or the other Catholic teaching mm-hmm. contradict anything in the Bible? And when I started looking at things from that perspective, the scriptures really opened up for me. 
And then I basically just reached a tipping point where I didn't necessarily have all the questions that I might ever have answered, but I had enough questions answered to my satisfaction that I thought that if there were any uh, question down the road that I was going to need an answer for, I had reached a level, a a place where I was confident Mm -hmm. that I would get that answer. I, you know what, I think that's a good illustration of the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Sometimes I think people, I'm, I'm not a convert in that sense at least. Uh, we all are converts, I guess, if we were pagans beforehand, yeah. as we all were. Um, but people very often, they get to these stumbling blocks, they don't know the answer. And their solution, if their solution is, well, I don't know the answer, but I'm not going to do any kind of a surrender then they're never going to get because they're relying on their own will and their own judgment as if it were somehow infallible. But very often, and I think Fulton Sheen uh, advises as well, if I'm, not, if I'm not mistaken, it's by the surrender that God is able to act and give you the light because until then, your will is an obstacle to him giving you the light. When you make the surrender in prayer, then the light and the understanding can come. And sometimes, I don't know if this was your case, but I've heard people say that the problem evaporated and they saw right away the cogency of it in light of the scriptures and and other things. It's when our will interposes and we are smarter than everybody else that it becomes difficult to see the light. Yeah, how's that, Scott? Good answer, and and what he was just saying is, is indeed when... A lot of times, people make an idol of their own understanding, right? And they and they are they are blocked by pride to even consider anything else. Yes, yeah. I think that's true. Thank you. We appreciate that uh, phone call very much today, and uh, hopefully during this Lenten season, you know, it's interesting because uh, we have a very dear uh, member of our family who uh, kind of entered our family with a certain hostility towards. Uh, Christianity mm-hmm. had a radical conversion experience and has four or five people every year since his conversion have entered the Catholic Church because of their association with him. Oh my goodness. So, yeah, anybody. Uh, no one is a match for the Holy Spirit. No, and faith ought to be the gift that keeps on giving, actually. Absolutely. On behalf of our host, Kyle and Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for another great week of EWTN's Open Line Friday. Back at it again Monday with Father John Tregilio. Until we get together then, God bless.